for most of us, silence is awkward. We live in a sound-saturated society. We ride down the road with our radios on in the car just to have some sound. Sometimes we walk around the house with the television on just to have some sound. Our cell phones, our computers, and yes, even our children are sound machines in our lives, just constantly producing sound. Because of that, we don't know how to handle silence. Silence makes us feel awkward. If that's true in our everyday life, I think it's probably also true in our relationship with the Lord. We don't like for God to be silent. We don't like for God to impose a gag order upon himself in our relationship. When we pray, we want and expect God to answer. And we don't know how to handle sovereign silence. This is the circumstance and situation for Asaph. Asaph is the author of Psalm 77. He is the music leader in Israel. He is the George Beverly Shea. He's the Chris Tomlin of his time. He is the one who would stand up and lead the people in worship. Yet here in Psalm 77, Asaph is struggling. Asaph is in the pit of despair. Asaph is crying out to the Lord and the Lord is not answering him. He says in verse one, I cried to the Lord. The implication, you did not answer. The word cry means shout. He's praying at the top of his soul. He is speaking at the top of his voice. He is shouting unto God. And God is not answering. He says, I stretched out untiring hands to the Lord. In other words, he has the right posture and position of worship to capture God's attention. His arms are outstretched. He has the right worship posture. He has the right prayer posture. It's almost as if he's trying to get the attention of the divine. I've stretched out untiring arms unto you, but my soul would not be comforted. Oh Lord, you kept my eyes from closing. In other words, you have not given me one wink of sleep. I have been awake in all of the watches of the night. You would not even do me this favor of allowing me to catch some sleep. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I got to the point, oh God, that I could not even put two coherent sentences together. You ever felt like Asaph? You've ever been in that moment of despair when you are despondent and God is silent? You try to grab his attention. You try to do everything possible to wave untiring hands and, 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 to, and to put uh, words together, but you get to the point that you can't even articulate two coherent sentences. I was too troubled to speak. Asaph tried to think of happier days. Days long ago when ministry was good, when life was going well, I tried to remember the good old days. But I mused. I was frustrated. I was aggravated. He even says he sang my songs in the night. You know, everybody probably has a go-to jam, don't you? 
You've got a song that you go to and it it lifts your spirits every time you sing it, every time you hear it. Maybe it's one of those ancient hymns. Maybe it's a modern day worship song. Regardless, whatever it is, it's your go-to song. I mean, you hear it and it just lifts your spirits. But Asaph is at the point that he even tried his go-to songs and they didn't work. I sang my songs in the night but it did no good. That's pretty bad when the musician cannot be comforted by his own music. That's pretty bad when the song that ministers to you no longer ministers to you. You get to verses seven, eight, and nine, and Asaph asks six indicting questions of God. You can feel them before you even read them or hear them. They are biting With indictment. It is transparent. It is vulnerable. It is painful to even read through. Verse 7. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Unfailing love. That's the Hebrew word chesed. It's the word that means the loyal love, the ever-pursuing love, the unconditional love. In Greek, it is agape. It is that kind of love that God has. And Asaph, because of his condition, because of his circumstances, because of the feelings in his heart, he says, has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful to me? It can also be translated, has God forgotten how to be merciful? Has he, in anger, withheld his compassion? You can't get much deeper in bone-crushing doubt than Asaph is here in Psalm 77. He prays. And it does no good. He sings and he can't lift his own spirits. And now he's reduced down to indicting God. No longer are you merciful. No longer are you majestic. No longer are you the promise keeping God. No longer is your love unfailing. Oh God, you are angry with me. And your compassion has been blotted out. Something changes. In verses 10, 11, and 12, it's the hinge of the psalm. Something happens and everything swivels. Asaph and his psalm is turned on its head. So you drop down to verse 13, and he says, our God is holy and our God is great. What? Are you kidding me? You just said moments ago that God is absent. You just said moments ago that his love has failed. You just said moments ago that he's no longer merciful and he no longer knows how to be merciful. And now in verse 13, you're saying our God is great. Our God is holy. And then he begins to celebrate how God had delivered his forefathers from Egyptian captivity. How God led them to and through the Red Sea. For he delivered them with a strong and outstretched mighty hand. He parted the sea so they could lead on dry ground. The waters writhed. The 
clouds downpoured water. There was thunder and lightning that raced across the skies. And he says, your path led them through the sea. And you led them like a flock through the hands of Moses and Aaron. You get to the end of the psalm and it does not end the same way it begins. In fact, it's drastically different. In the first nine verses, there is despair. In the last eight verses, there's devotion. In the first nine verses, I and me is mentioned 18 times. In the last eight verses, God is referenced 21 times. In the first nine verses, the focus is on self. In the last eight verses, the focus is on Savior. In the first nine verses of the psalm, it is reported that God is absent. Yet in the last eight verses of the psalm, it's reported and proclaimed that God is awesome. So what gives? How do you do such an about face? How do you go from despair to devotion? The answer is found in that hinge, verses 10, 11, and 12. The psalmist says, Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember, I will meditate, I will consider all your mighty deeds. I will remember, I will meditate, I will consider all of your works. It was Warren Wiersbe who said, do not doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. When you have the dark night of the soul, it is tempting to doubt the goodness of God. And Wearsby says, do not doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. In the dark. The dark will try to tell you that God does not love you, but you've been taught in the marvelous light God so loved the world that he gave his one only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The dark night of the soul will try to tell you that God cannot forgive you of that sin. Yet you've been taught in the marvelous light of the Lord that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The dark night of the soul will try to tell you that you are too gross for God's grace. But you've been taught in the light of the Lord that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, you've been told in the dark night of the soul that God does not listen to your prayers. But you've been taught in the light that I heard their prayers I was filled with compassion and I remembered my covenant to them. When you find yourself in the dark night of the soul, do not doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. This is what Asaph does. He gets to the point where he says, I've got to preach to myself. I've got to remind myself. I've got to tell myself of who God is and what he's done. I must remember. I must meditate. I must consider 
It is John Piper who says we have to fight for delight. You got to fight for it. You got to fight your thoughts. You got to fight your feelings. You don't just acquiesce to your thoughts. You don't just give in to your feelings. Sometimes you've got to fight for delight. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't always come easily. Sometimes circumstances are around us and we think to ourselves, how in the world are we ever going to get out of this one? How in the world is God going to ever make a way when there seems to be no way? And you've got to fight for delight. So Asaph uses intentional language, forcible words. These are words that demand action. I will remember. I will meditate. That word means to muse, to mull over, to, to digest it, to, to sink into it, to simmer around it. It's not just a fleeting recollection of what God has done in the past. It's not just uh, glancing through an occasional verse of Scripture. No, it is considering. It is mulling over. It is rolling it over and over and over again. It is chewing on it. It is digesting it. It is repeating it throughout your day. It requires intentional effort. It's not just happenstance. It's not just a coincidence. No, it's intentional. It is a It is a forcible action. I will remember, I will consider what God has done. If I could summarize this psalm into one verse, one statement, I think I would say something like this. That if you and I are going to move forward in faith, we must look up in prayer and look back to the mighty deeds of God. If we are going to move forward in faith, we've got to look up in prayer and look back to the mighty deeds of God. Because what God has done in the past is a great indicator of what he's going to do in the future. Past activity is the best indicator for future action. So we want to move forward in faith. Asaph wanted to move forward in faith. How could he do that? He had to look up in prayer and look back to the mighty deeds of God. This is exactly what he does in verses 10, 11, and 12. And it changes everything. Everything is on a hinge. It turns on a dime. And Asaph comes out of that experience declaring God is great and God is holy. You may sit there and think to yourself, Pastor, you got to give me something more than that. You mean to tell me that all I got to do is focus on God and my perspective is going to change on all the circumstances that are around me? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. You say, but wait a minute, Pastor, that seems far too simplistic for the complexity of my circumstances. And friend, I'm not going to disagree with you and I'm not going to argue with you. But you have to agree with me that it seemed to work for Asaph. And if it worked for Asaph, it just might work for you. And it just might work for me. Because Asaph says, in order for me to move forward in faith, I've got to look up in prayer and I've got to look back to the mighty deeds of God. And that's exactly what he does. So as I think about this psalm and as I mull it over in my mind, as you mull it over in your mind, there are a few things that I think about when I think about the mighty deeds of God. I'm reminded 
of how the children of Israel were led out of their Egyptian captivity. And Moses led them to the Red Sea. They had the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh and his armies behind them. They were between the proverbial rock and a hard place. And it was God who commanded for the waters to separate so that the Israelites could cross on dry ground. And as soon as the Israelites had passed and Pharaoh and his armies pursued them, then God commanded for the waters to come back and to recede and they collapsed upon the Egyptians. Now if God can get his children out of that mess, then God just might be able to get you out of your mess. When I think about the mighty deeds of God, I'm reminded of about 2,000 years ago when Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth through the birth canal of a virgin girl. He was born in a Bethlehem barn on a starry night. This birth announcement was not given to royalty but rednecks. The birth announcement was not proclaimed in palace halls, but pasture hills. It was the angels who proclaimed to shepherds. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And if God wants no-name shepherds of the first century to know about the birth of Jesus, then he just might want no-name shepherds like you and me to know about Jesus today. When I think about the mighty deeds of God, I'm reminded of another event that took place approximately 2,000 years ago when Jesus was around 33 years of age. He was bruised beyond all human recognition. He was beaten and bloody. They put a cross beam on his back. He stumbled outside the city streets of Jerusalem. He made his way up that hill called Golgotha. And there the Roman soldiers stretched him wide and raised him high only to lay him low. And as Jesus was writhing in pain, he had a conversation with one of the two criminals on the cross. Criminal on the right, a criminal on the left. And one particular criminal said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. My friends... If Jesus can save a criminal like that in the 11th hour, then Jesus can save a criminal like you and like me in this hour. Because when we think about the mighty deeds of God, it does something about how it turns our perspective. It changes our focus. And we move forward in faith by looking up in prayer, looking back to the mighty deeds of God. I can tell you that it was April the 15th, 1981. I was nearly seven years old. It was the spring of the year. It was about Easter time. And I was watching a television show about Easter. I actually think it was a Bill Gaither show. And somehow God used that to spark within me questions. Questions of why did Jesus do that? And what is sin? And what about me? Thankfully, my mother and my father were there to answer the questions for me, and I'll never forget, it was a pivotal moment. On that night, I prayed and asked Jesus to come into my heart, and he did. I asked him in the best way possible, the only way that a a skinny, knobby-kneed seven-year-old knows how to do it. Jesus, please forgive me, not just of what I've done to my sister, But please forgive me for everything I'll ever do in all my life. 
And Jesus, please just be in charge. And I'll do what you want me to do. And I'll go where you want me to go. And I'll say what you want me to say. At the age of seven, I had no idea that that seven-year-old boy would be a 43-year-old man standing before you to proclaim the gospel. But every time I get into the dark night of the soul, I look up in prayer and look back to the mighty deeds of God. And I realize that the God who saved me is the God who holds me. The God who saved me is the God who sustains me. The God who saves me is the God who leads me in this life and in life to come. And I don't know about you, but I know what it is to be Asaph. I know what it is to be in that dark night of the soul and wonder, God, I don't know how to handle sovereign silence. I'm not that good with that. I need some sound. I need some noise. And God doesn't say anything. And it seems like God doesn't do anything. What do you do with that? Don't doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. And there may be somebody here this morning who knows the need to fight for delight in your mind and your heart. And maybe, just maybe, you need to move forward in faith. And the only way to do it, because you're stuck, the only way to do it is to look up in prayer and look back to the mighty deeds of God. I know it sounds simplistic even as I proclaim it. But it worked for Asaph. It just might work for you. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as Savior and Lord, today I want to invite you to trust him as your Savior. Let me tell you what we're going to do. Brett's going to come up and he's going to lead us in a song and I, along with other ministers, will be standing right down here. Once you hear the first note struck, once the first word is sung, I want you to come down and take one of these ministers by the hand and say, hey, I need that Jesus. I know what it is to be in the dark night of the soul because of health concerns, because of physical ailments, because of relationship woes. Uh, I know what it is to be in that dark night, and I need Jesus. If that's you, my friend, I want you to do that this morning. Maybe you're here, and you've trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord. But like Asaph, you know what it is to go to your go-to tune and it doesn't work. It doesn't lift your spirits. And maybe this morning you just need to come and change your position and posture. Come and kneel here at the altar and pray and just reflect on the mighty deeds of God. It may not change your circumstances, but it sure will change your perspective to those circumstances. So this morning, as the Spirit of God leads, you respond. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for this simple yet significant psalm. And Lord, we pray if there's one listening to my voice who does not know you as Savior and Lord, that today will be the day of their salvation. If there's a believer here who is struggling in darkness, I pray today that by the marvelous light of the Lord, you'll reveal your mighty deeds in their lives. Lord, we give you this invitation. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.